Yeah. There we go. Hi, this is Paul, and this is the third of our marriage crisis conversations. You can find the other two. There's a playlist that I have been um, developing over all the conversations, some of the sub-conversations like the um, like the Korean couple, the conversation I had with them. I don't know if you guys saw that, but I thought um, in, you know, we've done, we've kind of fallen into a sort of every, every couple of weeks schedule here. Um, we'll see if, uh, we'll, after we, we're done with this, we'll talk about the holidays and figure out how this goes after that. But uh, in the meantime, the four of us do continue to sort of chat about this conversation and think about this conversation and marinate on it. And, um, on one hand, this is a conversation between the four of us where we're exploring something and all of you are watching. And so you're coming along with, and, and actually just before I hit the record button, we did mention that, as I always say, I, I never end my videos with like and subscribe or hit the notification button, which is YouTube liturgy. I always say leave a comment because the truth is that um, when you leave a comment that tells us far more than liking or subscribing or hitting the notification button. And um, I plan at some point we're going to do some of these with on StreamYard so that there can be a comment section and um, we'll get some we'll get some live comments along the way, perhaps. But um, until then, your feedback as an audience is really vital for us, knowing if we're just talking amongst the four of us, which all four of us really enjoy, or if actually we're doing something that's helpful and productive for those of you out there who are watching. So I, I thought maybe this week again, Rod had written something in the interim, and I thought that that might be a good place to start. So why don't you lead off with that, Rod? Intentionally, I've given myself homework here. Uh, <laughs> Joey would uh, not be happy. Yeah. I, I hate homework, but when it's voluntary, it doesn't feel like homework. Um, and good news, we're all still married. So far, so good. Um, okay, uh, let's see here. I brought it up. This is the email I sent you all. Um, so the context was, I had just made kind of a passing comment about uh, settling. And it was from a man's point of view, you know, what man really wants to feel like a woman settled for you, like you're sort of the last one standing kind of thing. I just made kind of a passing remark. And uh, uh, I really, I really enjoyed, as she so often does, Catherine spoke up and said something that I didn't expect. It was really quite refreshing, but it got me thinking later. And so I kind of kept, kept noodling on it and uh, I decided to write a few, a few thoughts down. So um, yeah, here goes. The, the, uh, the subject heading is Settling for Excellence. Um, my brother and I spent countless hours of our childhood wandering the hills behind our house, armed with a pair of binoculars and Roger Tory Peterson's Field Guide to Western Birds. And I, I thought of this and I went into my bookshelf and I actually found, I don't know if this is the original, but I might have just did in a moment of nostalgia, I might have picked it up at a bookstore or something, but here it is. Wow. This is, this is the book. Um, and, and the book had wonderfully detailed illustrations of every bird you might discover high overhead. And we trained our eyes and ears to be on the lookout for the distinctive song or flash of color of a species we'd yet to identify. 
my childhood memory from those vivid illustrations, and I, before we got on here, I bookmarked it so you could see what I'm talking about. Do you have a so new it, camera, Rod? Your picture looks particularly crisp. I don't know. I don't think, I think it's the same camera, but it's daytime. It's not nighttime. So it's oh, okay. Well, that could be. Maybe it's just the light. Is it okay? Is it too crisp? It looks good. No, like, do I, do I need to exfoliate? <laughs> um, so can you see this? So this is just a little, a little higher. So this is an example. Yeah, of, oh yeah. Like these are Orioles here and you can see how brightly colored the males are. And then you see the females, right. And they just, they tend to be, they all kind of look alike, actually. It's the males where you can really tell them apart. Um, so the females are a lot more plain. And this is what I wrote. I, I, I said, I remember uh, thinking how strange it was that humans seem to exhibit the opposite characteristics. It was the women who wore makeup, fancy clothes, lots of sparkling jewelry. Uh, from a child's simple logic, this never quite made sense. In our last conversation, Catherine said something as I'm learning, she often does, that was so simple, but upended my thinking on the subject. I was saying something about how corrosive it is to a man's psyche to realize that a woman had settled on him, implying he was the last one picked after she tried all the others. Uh, her response changed the entire direction of the conversation. With some light editing, here is what she said. Uh, that sounds great. What's wrong with having someone settle for you? If you're willing to settle for me and stop searching around for the ideal that probably only exists in your head or in a magazine somewhere, and you would settle into my vision of marriage, which means we're committed, we're doing this thing, we're going to make it about more than just us, then I love it because you're going to get attached to me. You're going to enjoy me. I'm going to make sure you have a great time. We're going to build a life together, and then you're not going to want to go anywhere. So I don't mind if you settle because that's just the beginning. That's not the pinnacle I was trying to reach. We're just uh, getting building at this point. And Eamon chimed in and said, Catherine and I have talked about when we initially got together, the different perspectives we came from, because I believe it was one of her relatives that said to her, you know, Catherine, uh, you could almost, you could have almost anybody, anybody you'd like. Why are you with him? Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> um, and we had a good laugh about that. Um, and Catherine responded, it was my grandfather who's now passed. He married us. But when, what I told him was I picked him because I could have who I wanted and I wanted him. I could, as a young woman, have found a guy who already had established himself and was well on his way in his career and had a house. And I was at a point in the sexual marketplace where I could have gone shopping. But building from the beginning, what you're looking for, what will make a good husband, like what are the characteristic tra character traits, what are the qualities of someone that make a good husband? And that's different. And I'm going to find somebody with established setup that I can just slip into. And I just wrote, I encourage the audience to go back and listen to that entire section. It starts about the 57 minute mark of our last conversation. I've been reflecting on this since then. At first, it was just a delightfully refreshing perspective. But as I thought more about it, I realized Catherine was modeling a very countercultural point of view, one worth more exploration. My first intuitions about Roger Torrey Peterson's illustration all those years ago, showing the bright plumage of male birds, have of course been thoroughly discussed by evolutionary biologists, but to dramatically oversimplify, evolutionary adaptation has favored males who can demonstrate fitness, or you might say worthiness, to a potential mate. This simple fact acknowledged that the species wouldn't survive without females and mate selection criteria favored males, 
who could win the competition for female attention. As soon as Catherine described herself as the one picking Amon, it stood out in stark contrast to the prevailing Western cultural norms where heterosexual women will often go to great lengths to compete for male attention, often encountering a lackluster crop, a lackluster crop of increasingly ambivalent and non-committal men. My wife listened to our conversation and completely agreed with Catherine. In her younger years, she would have loved someone to settle on her. I realize this probably has a very gendered lens on it because the idea of a woman settling for me deeply undermines my desire to win the prize. As a young man, I was inspired, at least in my own little corner of the universe, to make something of myself, to win the hand of the girl of my dreams. It was a significant driver of my ambition and the sacrifices I made to advance in the world. Perhaps the Disney effect is partly to blame here and the romance novel before that. The fairy tale of the prince choosing the sleeping beauty is deeply subversive to the idea of a bright, self-actualized, fully capable woman choosing the man who will stand beside her through the vicissitudes of life. Yet pointing to Disney fairy tales seem quaint when compared to the hypersaturated media environment we all swim in today. Perhaps the constant bombardment of images on screens has hijacked men's predilection for visual attraction, forcing women into an arms race of self-objectification, setting off a spiraling feedback loop of women amplifying their attention-seeking displays as men increasingly fade into irrelevance. A society that recognizes women as the ultimate choosers, where boys are shaped into men who must make something of themselves to compete to be deserving of a high-quality woman, is a society that has pointed its compass toward a generative future. That's what I wrote. Now, now you wrote it. Uh, you wrote it um, four days ago. Any any things percolate up since you've written it? Yeah, all kinds of things. <laughs> I I've I've written all sorts of notes, but I, I want to make sure other people get a chance to chime in. So let's let's give them a chance to react to it, and then we'll see what see what we come what where we go with it. One of the things that I, I saw immediately in this is the tension between settling and um, a hero's journey. Um, I think often, Rod, when you and I have spoken about this, a lot of the framing I hear from you, um, I, at, one, at one point you, you made a comment about um, something about um, a man is waiting, um, you said it so well, it's waiting for a woman um, he can rescue something, something to that, something to that effect. That, that what causes him to fall in love with her is that he sees that she needs him. Yes. Yes. And so the, the hero's journey is an aspect of this. Another, another theme that, that we've been talking about um, that, that I continue to think about as I listen to the marriage conversation is the degree to which the religious container, the 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 participation and and I guess part of what we're seeing perhaps necessity of a religious container for marriage today, as um, to to sort of withstand the disruption that technology is clearly bringing to the challenge. I I listened to half of. Chris Williamson's conversation with Louise Perry this morning. And 
her noting, of course, the 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 disruption that the pill has been in terms of enabling women in some ways to have sex like a man or to approach sex like a man would. And that's disruptive to, I think, this um, this long tradition that you nicely lay out here where there is sort of a a dance a dance between the sexes that um that is a very deep dance and i think it's been a it's been a satisfying dance the funny things about the funny thing about dancing is that it's strenuous and um part of what the internet does is make the strenuous common we 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 don't go and we don't go and watch people run a four. We don't go and run a four minute mile. We watch them. We don't dance. We watch them. Um, if we want to enjoy excellence of piano playing, we pull up Spotify or something on the internet and enjoy it. We don't go through the strenuous nature of learning it. And the, the participation in the this dance that you lay out is a strenuous dance that has been disrupted and i i hear in in this piece and in other aspects of our conversation a desire to once again participate in that but it's it's sort of now been disrupted by the choice that yeah on one hand for women the pill offers to well part of that strenuous participatory dance for women was the very real possibility of pregnancy, multiple pregnancies, as Louise Perry said in that interview, being, I mean, I mean, so my wife and I have five children and we look back and between 1991, when my oldest was born and 2000, when my youngest was born, a good bit of that time, my wife was either pregnant and often morning sick or postpartum. And so nine years of her life. And then after that, of course, then now she has, um, you know, five under 10. <laughs> this, is a, this is an extremely strenuous participation that now becomes optional. And hmm, that changes it. And there's also this, this element of like, well, what do you choose the other person for? You know, what's the telos? Um, that often goes unstated. People will have a desire for someone, but it's it's almost like the the dog chasing the the car, right? And when I, I and I talk to a, I've talked to many men who were like that in sort of in the therapist role where they're like, I don't, they don't know what they want to do. They're just kind of really like chasing. Um, and <laughs> with uh, I guess it goes to the autobiographical a bit here. I, I, I was in a relationship for about a year and a half um, with, with someone who was, was really wonderful in many ways. And part of why the relationship didn't work was, um, you know, the, the telos we each of us had in mind was, it wasn't that interesting to me, <laughs> if I'm being just really frank. Um, not that it was a bad one. There was nothing immoral about it. It was... Um, it was fine, but it was divergent. 
And with Catherine, one of the things that struck me right away was, oh, she has, I mean, it didn't end up working. The plan didn't end up happening, <laughs> but she had one of, she wanted to go to medical school. And the idea was she wanted to um, step into a, a place of service towards others. And for me, it was like, oh, there's alignment in values. Like there's a, there's a mission, there's an endpoint. And so I knew I wanted that too. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a home where purpose was talked about a lot. And when my parents would talk about their marriage, they would talk about what is the marriage for? And my dad's always been deeply involved in, in the community, in the region. He was mayor for seven years um, in Dryden here. And, and so that was always at the forefront that there's a, a larger purpose. And for, for me with Catherine, it was like, she, she wants to serve other people. The, the goal of, of medicine is, is outward focused. And there was a, a practical nature to that. And that I could agree that helping people that way is good. Um, and then there was, you know, as, as a Christian as well, you know, a, a larger picture as well that I thought, this is really exciting. I, I like this. And if I'm going to join my life with her and hers with mine, um, there's, there's a shared endpoint that's beyond us, which, you know, for, you know, almost, almost 18 years now, I mean, as, as really carried us, it's looked different um, than we anticipated rather than being a, a medical um, goal. Uh, it's been through, you know, therapy and counseling and, and that kind of thing. But um, that, that really bound us together. And for me, it was, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. We can talk about a shared vision. And the, the marriage was a vehicle for more than just, hey, we really like each other, even though we, we really do enjoy being with one another. And, and that's shaped us over time as well, where you know, decisions we've made, there's disagreements about how and when, um, but big picture, we're, we're aiming at generally the same things. And that gives the, the relationship, um, not, it's not only a binding agent, um, but it, it propels it forward as well. It's not a, a marriage group. You look at each other and go, oh, well, okay, so we're together. So I guess we'll watch Netflix again tonight. And that's kind of it. That's what we do, right? It's, um, and we do enjoy watching Netflix together. Don't get me wrong. Um, but there's, there's fuel. It's, it's headed somewhere. And, um, you know, I guess it's like riding a bike. If you have some momentum, it's, it's easier to stay upright and to keep moving forward than if, um, and you have to be headed somewhere. Right. And what do they say when you're, you're learning to ride a motorcycle? One of the first things they say is, um, Wherever you're looking, that's where you're going to go. So don't look down at your feet. Don't look at the things you don't want to hit um, or else you're going to trash this motorcycle. Look to where you want to go. And if you're looking in the same direction, broadly speaking, especially far down the road, um, that keeps you balanced and that keeps you keeps you from wiping out. And uh, I, that's been a, a, a major theme in, in our relationship. And I, it's hard to for me to think of the, uh, the marriage crisis in the West and, and decouple that from the moral relativism um, that's out there and, and the, the death of a, a grand narrative 
um, within the culture itself. So and I'm not saying that it's impossible, um, but I think it, it ups the degree of difficulty when you don't have those, those overarching um, values directed at something. Um, when you pull that away, it's, it's difficult. And, and you know, people that have good marriages that are not Christians that I know, um, I, I have found every time, I'm not saying these don't exist, but every time they have had um, shared um, big picture goals together. And that's, that's kept them bound together when you move beyond the, hey, you look really hot stage um, of the relationship. So that the what are you selecting the person for um, is what came to mind reading your email, Rod, and um, has, has been a place that I've, I've come back to often. And, and, and when I'm you know, doing marriage counseling with couples, that's often what I'm thinking is, okay, what is, if this relationship is going to work, what, what is bonding them together? What is the purpose of this relationship? What are they aiming at together? Because if, if there's some overlap there, I can appeal to that. And, and that will be a binding agent um, for them in their marriage. And if that, that's not there, then or we can't identify it, I'm, I'm focusing a lot of my energy on trying to find what those things are, even if they're, they're really, really tiny and hoping we can build off of that. And to, to Paul's point, um, the introduction of the pill really um, dysregulated that system because before automatically one of the things you would be selecting for would be, <clears throat> you know, the qualities of a husband. Do they have the nature that you would want to have in your children? Is their family support structure going to be facilitative of a secure family? Does their family get along with your family? It Because you would likely have children with that person, it built in all this other um, baseline stuff because part of the telos would be family together, life together, children together as um, inherent in being together, which has been decoupled in modern society. Those don't have to go together. So you don't have a built-in telos. Mm -hmm. oh. if, uh, if I was going to summarize the point that I was making with that little uh, email, um, was trying to capture something about something that you're doing in these conversations, Catherine, that really stands out. And it, particularly someone who's, you know, sort of been in that world of dating and sitting across from somebody um, at a dinner table, trying to sort of make sense of each other. Um, it's, a, I'm sure it comes naturally to you but it stands in a very stark contrast to the, the posture that a lot of people have adopted, even the people who are, who are trying to play the game, you know, relatively in good faith, right? Um, it's a very, it's, it, you know, you're taking the measure of each other. There's this kind of, there's a very, it's, it's very oppositional. It's really, it's war out there uh, for so many people. Mm. And what I was really noticing is, it wasn't, it, it's, it's not just, you know, the kind of warmth and agreeableness and all that, that you know, that's, that's nice. Um, but it's also 
a very clear-minded approach. Like you were very clear about what it was you were trying to do. I'm sure in hindsight, you can see that you were still young like anybody and you probably, some of your ideas have, have you know, mellowed or, or marinated over time because we all do that. But, you know, you, you had a pretty clear idea of what it was you were trying to accomplish and you wanted and needed a man to do that, right? And so one of the things that really comes across I don't want to speak for you, but it seems like you actually really like men and you really like, you know, you like what you can do with them with like you, you can see something quite positive and generative and you're, you're optimistic about it. And you have this kind of, you know, generous spirit about it. And so that's one thing. And the other thing was, and I, you know, just to make sure I made the point, it was that actually my sort of childhood oversimplification of like, why are the male birds so bright and shiny and the female birds are sort of not, you know, well, actually it's still that way. Men still have to demonstrate, right? Value, right? It's just, you know, we don't necessarily do it with, with colorful clothes or whatever, um, but we are still being evaluated all the time by our capacity to, you know, to perform, you know, essentially to self-sacrifice, to provide resources, to, to, um, that in the manosphere, they'll say something like women just are and men have to become, right? They'll say something like that, right? Um, that in order to sort of be worthy of a woman, you have to sort of make something of yourself first. And in that sense, it's probably a lot like uh, the, the biological world where men are showing that they, you know, they have resources and that they can, they're fit, right? Um, so yeah, that's what I was trying to bring attention to. I was trying to bring attention to how different that is than what it's like out there. And now your comment about a telos, Eamon, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of take a, a, a little detour for a second. Sure. But I hope it will be relevant. So in the new, it's in, the, in this country, in the, we, in the news, we just passed this, this high profile legislation. Um, where Congress voted to, to concretize um, same-sex marriage, and I think also interracial marriage. That seems yeah. political. I mean, it seems like that was obviously okay for a very long time. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, and, and even same-sex marriage has been legalized for a while. So, you know, it feels a little bit ceremonial, uh, you know, a bit political, um, but, you know, fair enough. And I, I'll speak only for myself here, but I'm in favor of that. I mean, you know, I'm in favor of, of people having the freedom to, to um, ceremonialize and make official their committed relationships. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a product of the age and I don't have a problem with people, um, you know, making official the commitments they've made privately. So what we're doing is we're increasing the aperture of what is allowed when we say marry, right? Like we're, we're basically making it a, a more accepting and permissive and allowing structure. So it isn't just, you know, between a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. It's, it's, it's a broader definition, right? And I think most people feel 
comfortable with that and feel like that's probably the right thing to do. But the other side of that, and this goes back to the comment, maybe it was the last conversation where we were talking about Jordan Peterson getting in trouble for describing enforced monogamy, right? There was this forcing function that marriage used to have. And, and Paul, your comment about Louise Perry, her, her, the other thing she said about the, the introduction of the pill was the traumatic decline of the shotgun marriage, right? That, <laughs> that was a forcing function, dad on the porch with a shotgun. Um, you were expected to get married. And in some cases you were forced to get married. Um, marrying somebody, you know, like if you, for example, if you got a woman pregnant, it was expected that you would marry her right? Like that was part of the deal. And so there wasn't, there was this other side of it, which is that you had to do it, right? Now, we're living in a world where nobody can make anybody do anything. This is kind of my comment from the last one, right? Is it, if, if other than paying my taxes and driving on the right-hand side of the road, what exactly do I owe anybody, right? If anybody is free to go at any time, then there really is no forcing function. That part is gone, right? And as a person who likes my independence and autonomy, I'm not necessarily mourning that. You know, I, I, I wouldn't want a lot of I wouldn't want people telling me how I could live, right? So most of the the at least the the legislative piece and really the cultural piece is people are free to do what they want to do. You know, theoretically, as long as they don't hurt anybody else, right? I mean, you could argue about that. There's a certain, there's a tragedy of the commons going on there um, where lots of people are getting hurt, but maybe not, uh, maybe they don't have anybody they can blame for it, right? Um, so what we're left with is only voluntary. You know, we're emphasizing allowing people who want to, to be able to formalize their relationship. Right? That's what we're emphasizing. And I'm in favor of that. Right? In that environment, the only thing you have left is to make it really, really appealing. Right? So the, the, back to your telosing. Maybe that's another way of saying what you're saying, which is if you're, if you're not in a faith tradition, if you're just a secular person and you're and you're contemplating, as a man, you're contemplating, I'm never gonna sleep with another woman again in my life, right? Like this is, this is it, right? mm-hmm. this is, I mean, any other one. Um. <laughs> or maybe the first. Hopefully not that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of sexless marriages out there. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad somebody else said that. Um, so the, A telos sort of implies this kind of, you know, something, some greater good, some some project you're working on together, right? Something, right? And of course, I'm in favor of that. I'm absolutely in favor of that. But for the most part, what marriage is now is just all downside and not a lot of upside, right? So that's why what Catherine was doing is like, oh, wait a minute, you know, here's a person who is in position to be choosy and she's using the power she has to make a choice and she's doing it enthusiastically and she's happy with her choice, right? Like what a concept, right? So <laughs> I, I, like, I don't, I don't know how well I, 
describe what I was trying to say when, when you know, that's what stood out to me. Yeah, it's, it, my mind keeps going to the, the unstated um, goals and assumptions that are there because you know, as much as it's about, um, well, you just, people should be free to choose what they want. And I agree with that too. I think that um, I don't particularly like the idea of people being you know, forced um, into relationships. Um, uh, the, there is so much that is that really is unstated. Like even with the manosphere, the comment there about like, oh well, um, men um, you know have to achieve, and women get to be. I'm like, if we're talking about sex, sure. If we're talking about a man making a commitment, no. <laughs> um, it's what are we talking about in the manosphere? My and this is my, you know oversimplification it seems to mostly be about how to get laid like i think that's mostly what it's about and it's not said like occasionally it is but that's that's a lot of it and that doesn't mean that um there isn't value coming from that that corner like i i think understanding attraction and um i think, I think in some ways if, if you utilize what they're saying well is you know how do you keep there being sort of you know some spice in your sex life with your spouse like there's and to be thinking about, you know, why, why do I not have anyone interested in me? I guess that's useful. And I think the more mature side of the manosphere, where there's some anger around a lack of paternal rights over children. Yes, that makes sense. Because it, it really, you know, yeah, it touches on things that are, I think, destabilizing our entire society. Um, you know, they, they focus on that, too. Um, to these unstated assumptions, like the, I, I have a hard time. Um, back to the last conversation, the the comment about psychology, you know, is to the West as Islam is to the the Middle East. Um, what, if you look at all of the the ethical um, guidelines, um, code of ethics for every psychological group, be it the you know, APA, CPA, looking at the state level, the provincial level. Uh, what is at the very top of that hierarchy of values? It is always patient autonomy. You know, no matter what is going on, you do not violate patient autonomy unless um, it is directly going to lead to someone being killed <laughs> or, or them being killed. And uh, there was this, this quote, um, this was like in the 70s when there was a lot more thought in psychology about implicit values. I can't remember the psychologist's name, but he was criticizing his own field saying, um, basically, in a nutshell, psychologists and psychiatrists really need to be thoughtful about their assumptions because they go unstated, because otherwise um, we are being uh, crypto missionaries for a particular worldview. And um, when we're, we're not clear about that because you know so much of you know early psychology was about being you know completely neutral um and so it's what what does the client want what is, what does the patient want um that there's a whole worldview that's that you know in that and so you know being crypto missionaries i'm like well it happened um because our law is based around that um how we think about relationships is based around that we have a hierarchy that's at the top. 
And what do we have? We have a, a culture that's very heavily influenced by psychology and um, psychotherapy. And what do you, what are you taught? Well, what do you want? You should be free to do what you like. And that then informs marriage therapy, couples therapy, individual therapy, and you, you can't get away from it. And, but yet there isn't a lot of consciousness, I think even amongst a lot of psychologists um, about how that operates. Um, there's a reason why, unfortunately his name eludes me at the moment, um, why he had felt like he needed to write that and say, look, we are, we are shaping things. We are shaping law. We are shaping people and values. Um, and this will have downstream effects. So, you know, are we, are we going to be self-conscious about that? Because we, we are missionaries. And I think, yeah, we, we are. And, and now here we are 50 years later. And of course that's being played out um, with, with marriages and male, female relationships and families too. And my last point, and I'll step aside, uh, that, that being free to leave at any moment if you know about um, attachment theory, what is that going to create? A really, really deeply insecure attachment style. If you can leave at any moment, how can I not be anything but either well, the, the two, well, the three manifestations of, of a attachment style that's not secure. It's um, either I'm going to cling to you. I'm going to pretend I'm not interested in you and keep you away, or I'm going to oscillate between the two. Um, I'm going to cling to you and then push you away. And that is what I see in marriages. And we have set this, the stage for the insecure attachment to, to reign supreme. We're, we're enticing it. We're calling it forth into relationships with that, um, that environment. This is such an important topic. Paul. We're filming at a different time and I'm noticing that I'm getting, I'm, I'm about to be bathed in the sunlight because the sun's coming in. So I'm going to, if you could, maybe you've just pushed pause for a second and I sure. can, I can. Final thought. So actually one, one last thought there is, you know, where it's, it's pretty well established that your family of origin is going to affect you. And um, ideally, as a child, your, your parents' marriage is very secure. And that's how you go out and you explore. You explore from the secure base that you know is going to be there. You can try things. Maybe you get hurt, you get beat up, but you, you come back to home base and you know that it's there. And we're now a few generations on into children growing up in homes where their parents are primed for insecure attachment because there's like you were saying, Rod, you have to maintain being enticing um, or else they're going to leave you. And for, for people who are even, you know, a little bit neurotic, uh, you're, you're going to be thinking about that. Um, you know, am I still a good deal because he or she could leave at, at any moment. And, and then that's, that's, that is home base for those kids who then now carry that from, from their family of origin into that environment that is, is going to create that negative feedback loop of insecurity and, and away we go, right? <laughs> I feel so strongly that this is, it's like, we're trying to talk about marriage and we're saying how hard that is to get our arms around. And you just pointed to what this is really about, I think. 
which is secure attachment, right? And human beings are social creatures. We're, we're, we need touch. We need to be seen and heard. We need to belong. We need to, know, we need to be able to find our place within a community. And the most irreducible unit of value and all of those things has been, is, I think, a family, right? And so we just took a very hard subject and just made it way harder because now we have to go upstream. We have to, we have to find the sort of emotional headwaters of the, you know, the cascading multi-generational effect that you're describing. Yet, if, if you want this to get better, you're going to have to figure out a way to create stable, secure homes where children grow up you know, modeling healthy relationships and secure attachments and where they get their emotional needs met and they come into the world with, with healthy expectations of the, of the opposite sex and so forth. I mean, that there's so much, I mean, how on earth do you fix that, right? But I agree with you. This is inevitably where you end up in this conversation. Uh, you have to at least uh, wrestle with the, the, the multi-generational trauma of abandonment and, and separation. And as you say, you know, the, the, the intermittent, the, the clinging and, and abandoning. Um, sometimes I think the, this kind of existential anger that you hear so often coming from women, my, my first reaction to it is I have a huge amount of empathy for so many mm -hmm. of them because there's obviously pain underneath this. And you can almost, you can almost picture the, the child standing in the driveway as dad drives off for the last time. Mm -hmm. And just, the, the, just the, the raw pain and emptiness and anger, and you wanna just pound on his chest and tell him how much you hate him and you want him to stay and hold you and hug you tighter, not leave, right? And yet there's just so many people who are, have been so traumatized by this. Anybody's free to go at any time. I don't know what you do about that exactly, but I do think that a public conversation about it is, is long, is long overdue. Well, this, this I think leads to one of the, the real weaknesses of psychology too, because we'd like to have an algorithm and and this is this is an observation, not a political statement. Um, the psychologists tend to lean heavily left, <clears throat> and with that, there is uh, a focus on environment, um, which is certainly a large part of the equation. Um, but trying to to muck about with only um, externals. Uh, leaves you unable to explain a lot of things, including, I think my, one of the reasons I feel strongly about this is my own family. Um, you know, parents, both from broken homes. And I, I have very secure attachment. And it's, it's because, you know, despite what they went through, um, you know, my, my dad, and like I said, in our first talk, was just like, I, I want, I want to be stable because I know what it's like to be in a home that's unstable. So I, I'm going to be as stable as I can be. 
And I want that for my kids because I don't want them to go what I've gone through. And, you know, other people will, will go the other route, right? <laughs> Where it's like, well, I know what, what that's like. So I'm just not going to commit ever. Um, and unless you're talking at that, that individual level as well, um, I think you end, end up either trying to engineer society and ruining it even more. Because um, what happens, to, what usually happens when you try to fix something you don't understand. Um, and you rob yourself of being able to speak to that, that person. I think that's why Jordan Peterson is sort of interesting as a psychologist um, and why there's not a lot of psychologists like him um, because he is profoundly interested in the individual and is also looking to intervene at the level of the individual. Um, you know, he's concerned about societal uh, things, but, you know, psychologists, at least a lot of the ones that I know, they will talk about, um, they're interested in individuals, but they're really, the agenda is to re-engineer society um, when it comes down to it. And um, that doesn't mean I don't think there should be interventions at that level. I think those are important. And if you miss those, those macro factors, then people are going to be a mystery to you. And you're probably gonna end up being really judgmental and harsh on them um, if you see them only as an individual. But the, the tilt seems to be really far left in the um, in, in focus on environment from the from the psychological world, and and that's where you know a lot of the evolutionary psych comes from as well. And just to clarify, you mean focus on the environment as in it's the environment that caused that's this determinative problem, ultimately, as opposed to the internal engagement up with the environment which yeah. tends to lean more on the right-hand side of the spectrum. Yeah, so seeing it as you gotta contend with both. And if you contend only with one, it's it's trouble. And, and I would say that in a lot of churches, the tendency is to focus, focus so much on the individual that you can crush people who, you know, they're up against far more than you would ever know or understand, even if they told you what they've been up against. Um, and, and I think that's part of the, the disconnect is, you know, the polarization really hurts everybody um, between right and left because they both have answers within them um, that are important. And, and psychology is uniquely positioned, but I think in a lot of ways, dropping the ball. Um, and it, it manifests itself, of course, at that fundamental level of the family, right? And male-female dynamics and, and then, you know, more broadly speaking, um, marriage as a as a way of binding people together. As a pastor, I often see people who could use a little therapy. When I was in seminary, one of the main things that they hammer into you in seminary is you are not a psychologist, so don't play one in your church. Um, and what that means as a seminarian, you sort of like, I'm not quite sure where the lines are. So then you, in, in the process, you begin to learn where the lines are. Here's psychology over here. These are some of the things that can help. Here's, you know, here's pastoral care, church ministry. This should be your focus. I am often reticent to send couples in unhappy marriages to psychologists because in almost every case, the result will be the end of the marriage, even if it's couples therapy. Because what I have seen is that the psychologist is committed to the well-being. Now that well-being is framed, the well-being of the patient, 
And in many cases, whatever is driving, or at least part of what is driving some of that lack of well-being is getting manifest in the marriage. And the easiest way to remove the irritant is to remove the spouse. And, um, you know, all of the, and then of course, and this is almost a cliche, they then very quickly go out into the world and find someone else and the whole story repeats itself. (laughs) (laughs) But, but this, this to Eamon's point that there are implicit values in there that in some ways the church, the church leans on this and says, yes, we want your individual welfare, but we also want the welfare of the unit and the children. And of course, you know, we talked a little bit in the last one, Kramer versus Kramer in the 1970s, the kids will be all right. And then by the 1990s, a little bit more study said, well, maybe they won't be. And by now 2020s, it's like, go into my randos conversations. And I always listen for it. Um, listen for the marriages that broke up and the children shuffling, you know, shuttled back and forth, maybe. And and the Randall's conversations that make it onto my channel are, you know, maybe more than half, but many of the Randall's conversations that don't make it to my channel much more get stuck in there in terms of this question of attachment. Because how can I trust an unseen God if I can't, if I couldn't really trust my parents? And that then comes into, and the key thing here is that, you know, back to the the marriage equality conversation, for a generation now, a, um, a gay couple might get married as a sort of political act. But what has happened in the hetero community is that marriage, people don't marry until they decide we want to have children together. And those tend, and then there's a class element of this too. Those tend to be middle and upper class who have all sorts of advantages, usually come from better homes, have better education, have better, are in a better situation financially. And the article that I posted on Twitter and got some really interesting pushback from that I just put in our little group chat, the, you know, the New York Times, the New York Times comes out this week with who will care for kin kinless seniors and Mm -hmm. one of the one of the one of the lines that that popped out to me was because again i work with a lot of seniors one of the things actually coming to the christian last year was same-sex marriage next year is do can can the retirees in the christian reformed church only get married in the church thus sanctioning their sexual life and not get married in the eyes of the state thus threatening um, estates and retirement benefits that would be jeopardized by a new partner. Because many, actually, I would say in the Christian Reformed Church, there are an increasing number of seniors who are cohabitating, living together, shacking up, living in sin, all of those, all that church language with respect to this. The church basically looks the other way because they're not going to have children. And Marriage is about children. And exactly what you said, Rod, 
And what you said, Eamon, the, the ethos of the culture is nobody's going to tell you what to do. And in many respects, churches have been sort of cowed into, we have to take that posture with people. And I, I would say that the, one of the other interesting sort of disjuncts between the, the church and the psychological world too is um, you can have a, a principle you aspire to, um, but if you can't operationalize that into a process, <laughs> yeah, especially something as complex as a, as a marriage, um, you're in trouble. Like, I would say that, like you were saying, Paul, about um, pastors were like, don't, you're not a psychologist, don't, don't step into that. Um, the church will often have principles that it points to for, yeah, this is what makes a good marriage. Uh, but people are a mess. And it's like, well, how do you get there? And if you don't have a way of um, saying this is the process towards being um, a, a good husband or a good wife or a parent, um, people are floundering. People are really you know, deeply struggling. It's like, yeah, maybe I, I want to do that, but I can't and I don't know why. And, and you sort of left with two options, right? You either conclude, well, I guess I'm just so messed up that there's no way that I can actually reach what this, this ideal goal is. Um, and you just despair, or maybe you get angry and you lash out, or you go, these principles are garbage. I like, this is stupid. Um, so I'm, I'm done with that. And then on the, on the psychological side of it, I mean, we do breaking things down into small pieces and identifying the process really well. Um, but the, the underlying assumptions and the telos isn't always clear. So you give people these, these tools, but what are they aspiring to? Well, you know, I can't really say, I shouldn't tell you. You get to decide what you want um, individually and you get to decide as a couple and you, you're just sort of left to figure that out. And so, you know, where, where do these, these meet um, with, I guess, the caveat being that what's implied the, in, in the, on the psychological side are all these values of, you do what you want. You do what makes you happy. You need to be free um, at all moments, all the time. And um, that's what I will help you uh, accomplish um, at the end of the day. So, and then I mean, to add one more layer, you're using these words and who knows what they mean. I was talking to a, a client recently um, and she re was recently divorced. And now I was talking about, you know, getting, getting remarried. And uh, so yeah, the conversation eventually goes to like, so, you know, what are you, what are you looking for? And uh, she's probably, she said, well, I don't want anybody who's romantic at all. I, I hate that stuff. And I was like, okay, well, click, tell me. Click what on previous, click on previous conversation. Yeah. And she says, she goes, well, when, when somebody's romantic, what that means is like, they'll buy you flowers or something like that. But, uh, you know, they're really lazy in bed. And, um, and she just goes on to describe like the most horrible person. And I, I said, I don't think that's what romantic means. Um, this is somebody <laughs> pretending to be romantic. Uh, and they think that they can dupe you if they give you flowers. Um, and I, you know, we described a little bit what, what I think generally people mean by romantic uh, in terms of, you know, attention, being thoughtful, um, you know, honoring the other person, being attentive to their needs. And she, and she said, oh, well, I, I would like that, actually. I said, well, so, you know, maybe maybe romance is 
you know, do something. And then another one was, um, oh, I don't want anybody who's always checking up on me. I don't want anyone who's to check on me at all to see how I'm doing. And I was like, okay, again, let's break it down. What do you mean? Um, Cause you know, I'm thinking like, you know, I kind of like it if Catherine's like, oh, you know, it's, you said you were going to be here at eight 30. It's nine o'clock. And it's like, oh, she's thinking about me. She's not like, oh good. He's late. Um, I get a little more time, a little more me time. And you break it down with her. It's like, she describes a really controlling relationship where it was like, who are you with? Um, why aren't you back now? Are you seeing someone else? And, and I said, well, you know, again, you know, I think of checking up on, it's like somebody's concerned for your well-being, And if you're not there, they want to make sure you're not in the ditch or, you know, you, you're a car accident or something. And, and again, her response was, oh, no, no, that's, that's actually really nice. And, uh, you know, like, okay, so when we're talking about marriage and we're talking about relationships, what are people hearing? I mean, that's, that's one of the things you're confronted with all the time as a psychologist is we're talking about your marriage even if we're talking about sex, you know, I hear horrible things when, um, for how some people define the difference between, you know, sex and like rape um, or sexual abuse, you know, their, their definitions of these things are really different. So if we're talking about, you know, getting married or whatever, they're, they're just hearing like, what you want me to do what? Um, and it's like, man, this is, this is, you know, like you said, Rod, this gets really complex. And, uh, and that's, that's at the most fundamental level. And, and the result of um, insecure attachment three, four, five, six generations in and the way people react when they feel insecure in a relationship to control, to push away, um, to get angry and, and bully um, or to, to become really codependent and I need to make you happy all the time. But it's, uh, yeah, it gets, I guess so that we're, even defining things becomes um, really challenging. And if you're going to set up ideals, you know, in a, in a, a, a culture that is very um, pluralistic, um, that's hard. Now, now let's operationalize it and let's get a process that we can help people identify and work through. And, you know, away we go. <laughs> but operationalizing anything requires definitions and shared goals. Yes. That's yeah. the definition of operationalizing. You're yeah. heading somewhere together. Yeah. And and you know, the thing you hear all the time is the the implicit the implicit purpose of marriage I hear in the culture is marriage should make me happy. Yeah. And I think I I certainly want you to be happy. And I would love for your marriage to make you happier than if you weren't married. But I don't think that's the vehicle for that. And I'm committed to, um, you know, asserting the goodness of marriage. And which is why it's, it's the religious people, someone like Tim Keller, who has the audacity to write a book where he basically openly says, marriage isn't there to make you happy. Marriage is there to make you good <laughs> and possibly great. Okay, I got to bite on that because I'm, I'm I'm trying to make sure I leave room for Catherine to talk here. Too. <laughs> so like, oh, she'll so, talk. I'm not worried about Catherine. So, okay, I, I I'm a typical millennial or Zoomer, and I hear the horror stories. I hear all you know, Kramer versus Kramer. You know, people just walking away from their children and like. 
my ex will take care of them. You know, we watch that now. We're like, what are they thinking? Like at the time is some act of empowerment. Now we're like, what are you doing? Like, how could you possibly, right? Mm-hmm. And you might think, well, okay, well, then maybe people who have children, we don't let them get divorced, right? Or something like that. Like, you know, sorry, you gotta, you gotta stay together at least until the kids are grown. And then the answer is, well, well, how about we just don't do that? How about we don't get married at all? How about we don't have kids? Like I, I'll save you a lot of trouble, right? I'll save myself a lot of trouble. I just won't do it at all, right? And the, the article that you shared, Paul, so if it's not to be make me happy, by the way, I agree with you. Um, well, the article you shared is, you know, this concern about all these kinless folks are going to grow old and have nobody to take care of them, basically, mm-hmm. right? Well, is that what marriage is for? So marriage is so I'll have somebody to be around when I'm old? Well, that sounds great, right? Um, I mean, I can that, see that's why. What kids are for, too. Right. I can see why I would want that, but how do they feel about it? <laughs> So it made me think of your, uh, your, the, the conversation you had with the Korean couple, which was lovely. They were lovely. But if you actually paid attention, they were describing an approach to marriage. I mean, basically it was sort of an updated version of an, of an arranged marriage, right? And both of them seemed to be quite intentional about what it was that they were getting married for, right? Um, and, you know, you, you, you'll hear people say it's the most important decision of your life, right? Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But listen carefully when you say that. Well, haven't you already started instrumentalizing the other person? You, you, you've already started the process of evaluating what they can do for you, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. all of this, the whole conversation is in one way or another. Now, the, the, the reality is, I think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a historian. I'm not an anthropologist. I, 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 but what I read and what I understand for most of its history, marriage was a relatively pragmatic institution. It was about property, mm-hmm. it was about lineage, you know, legacy and things like this. Um, romantic notions uh, seem to be more modern of, about, you know, love and self-expression and all these other ideas. Um, but I don't see how on earth we will ever get back to selling marriage as, well, you don't want to be alone when you're old, do you? <laughs> right? Um, if, if, if it becomes a transaction, well, then you've lost the enchantment altogether, right? And if, and if the enchantment has to remain, like as soon as you state it, this is kind of like what we talked about the first time we talked, Paul publicly was you know this this idea as soon as you spell it out you degloss it right like well here's what I'm looking for and then you say what it is and then if you get it well you should be happy right you got what you wanted <laughs> right but so much of human relationships is about something entirely different it's about bonding it's about belonging it's a, it's about um, it's about caring right um, and I'm. I'm just not sure that you redeem marriage by scaring people into it or, you know, all the other no. ways. Right. Um, because my answer to that, if, if I'm a, if I'm a sort of a, a typical millennial is I'm going to be like, well, I'll save you all a whole lot of trouble. I just won't do it. Right. No problem. Right. No divorce, no abandoned children. Right. Um, and if you say, if you get married, you can't get divorced if there are children, or you start trying to make it more of a forcing function. Well, the next thing people can do is just opt out, 
right? So it's not like it helps marriage to make it more onerous, right? So I, I just don't know how we get out of this unless I, we make it more beautiful somehow. We, we re-enchant yes. it somehow. Sorry, please. Go, Kat. I think the answer is you have to pu- you have to push further into that problem. Mm-hmm. You have to push further in and you say, okay, then what's the point of life? Why are you here? What do you want to do with your life? And if, like, there's only a few answers to that question, right? Like, there's only a few answers. So why, like, what's the point of being alive at all? Well, to experience everything. I want to see all the things and do all the things. It's like, okay, well, why? Why do that? It's like, well, I think that will make me happy. Like, okay, how long will that make you happy for? Most people, you can do some of that, but it takes money, you know, unless you're in the top, like, tiny, tiny sliver of people. We're talking, what, like a week, a year where you get to go see the Taj Mahal or something, and and you're going to suffer for all the other weeks of the year for that, for that. That's what's worth living. Like, okay, that's one answer. Like, I want to see the things and experience the world. And even then, the underlying assumption is because there's something good there to experience and see. Right? There's a good thing there that I want to go get access to. And seeing that beauty or that, you know, riding that motorcycle on that mountain, that's worth all the pain because that experience is so good. That's one answer. The other answer is I want a little more psychopathy, but I want control. I There's all these people around me. I can make them do what I want. And I enjoy making people do what I want. Like, I like that. It makes me feel powerful. And that feeling of power is worth living for no matter what the result is like I don't care but I I like this feeling okay then there's family there's human connection there's familial friendly warmth connection which is what most people land on it's like I'm here because I I love people and it's kind of jaggedy and broken and there's rough parts and whatever but you know I hear people all the time it's like well my cousin killed himself. I've thought about killing myself. But the reason I don't is because of my nieces and nephews, because of my kids, because of my mom. The reason I'm willing to stick through the same, the suffering and the pain of life is because of people I love. And I don't want them to suffer more. And maybe, maybe someday I could have my own kids. And, and, and it kind of gets fuzzy at that point, even because it's like, oh, that's too big of a thing to hope for, that I would have people that love me the way I love my mom. That's too much to hope for, but, but, you know, I can be here for my nephews and I can. And so a lot of people will land on family. Like we really are social. Like we're very deeply social. So it's like experience, connection, power, which is also money, right? Power and money. Like that's the same category. Um, there's not, there's not a lot of other answers to that existential question. And so. That's where I think our, your, your functional anthropology means a lot. Like if you think, it's one thing, if, if you think that people are generally awful, you're probably not gonna get married or wanna have any. Uh, and, and if you, you think that people are just awesome, they're, they're just fantastic. And yeah, they have, they have their issues, they have their problems. Um, you're going to view being married and having kids and grandkids and, and all of that in a very different way as well. You know, I think the, the, the darkness that is there about just 
humans and human nature. I mean, I find it disturbing the kind of movies that are generally put out and the stories that people are drawn to. And it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like people have had real traumas and it's like, they're drawn back to things that reaffirm that. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I get to see the dark side of human nature. I know people can be really, really awful. Um, Thankfully, I think that there are more people who aren't <laughs> than who are. And I'm right. oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Finish your thought. And that, I mean, I, I think my kids are great. <laughs> I think my wife's great. I, I meet people. I really like my clients. I think that they're, they're awesome. Sometimes they're referred to me because um, it's part of their parole. Um, but but I, I see you know, delightful things in them and I see a battle going on and um, I see that there's a part of them that's drawn towards things that are really awful. There's a part of that's drawn to things that are good. And, um, and so the, the thought of, of human connection and flourishing and, and being in a, a family and having access to you know, forming somebody else and, and seeing what they can become, I, I find that invigorating and exciting. So I think for whatever good this is. I think that part of this is an issue with urbanization because I think the difference you're describing is the difference between seeing people as um, vegetables in the grocery store to choose versus plants that are growing. You know, you get used to a, an environment where it's like what you choose, that's the finished product. It's, it's lifeless, right? It's cut off. And even people, you get the facade. It's like, I'm at work, you're getting my work front, you know? Um, you don't have chickens and goats that you like raise from babies and then butcher and eat later. Like you, you don't, you're not in a system that is a living, organic, moving, growing Static. system. It's this, I'm choosing the product and that is the product that I, I have. And, and then the emphasis goes on you to be a savvy consumer. You know, are you choosing the right attributes? Are you putting things in you that will be life-giving instead of thinking of yourself as a part of a, a large system, system. oh how am i going to get these carrots to really grow yeah <laughs> i, I want to know if Eamon's a chicken or a goat that's what i want to know <laughs> uh, when you were talking about uh the the shows that people are drawn to it made me think of something kind of funny um because I, I do think you're you're sort of dividing the world into people who think people are great and people who think people aren't great you can hardly blame them anybody's on social media um uh, you can't blame them for going away with the impression that people can be really disappointing at minimum. Um, we're just, you know, of course the algorithms are amplifying all of that, but we have a joke, my wife and I, cause we're constantly getting the recommendations of the shows that everybody's watching or it's, it's white Lotus right now, but it's, you know, it's, 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 this has been going on for years. Right. And, you know, remember breaking bad or, you know, game of Thrones or right, all, all the shows that everybody was watching uh, handmaid's tale. And we'll get like halfway through one of these episodes of like, this is really dark. <laughs> it's like, like we, we like to watch like, you know, English gardening shows or, you mm. know, like the, the, the BBC mysteries, you know, I particularly like the ones where the murders already happened. Like, I don't have to see that. I can just, now we're just going to solve it. Right. Like, like I don't want to go to bed with like these kind of images in my head. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm always, I'm always mystified by why is it that so many people love these terrible shows like people just acting terribly right and it, it made me think of something just recently so one of our shows that we like is the the original antique the antiques road show the the, 
the British version, the BBC version of it. And it's been mm-hmm. going on for like 40 years or more, right? So it's an old, old show and there's lots of reruns. And there's something interesting about that show. Uh, so, you know, part of the fun of it is trying to figure out what the thing is worth, right? So people are bringing in, in, many, in particularly when you're in England, there's a lot of old stuff there, right? So like there are things from like, you know, the 1300s yeah. are like, and you can't believe I could get that for like 300 pounds. Like, I mean, just, just because it's so old, I'd want it, right? <laughs> it's sort of weird. And then you have something which, you know, has obvious sentimental value, but doesn't have a lot of market value. In other cases, it's like just outlandishly valuable. And that's what makes it fun, right? But there's, there's something about that. So, you know, usually the people will say, well, we're not selling it. It's like it's part of the family lore, and blah, 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 right? Yeah. Sometimes they just found that it in a, in a teak shop and they need the money. But So what the show is doing is showing you the difference between sentimental value, let's call it, right? Family history, whatever, and the market value, which is essentially collectors who've decided mm. what's in fashion right now, right? So mm. there'll be these weird kind of bubbles where everybody decides they want this particular thing and all of a sudden it's really valuable. And, and then 20 years later, it's not so valuable. And so the, it, made, it made me think of, this is another way of thinking about what we're talking about, right? It's like the marketplace is not particularly good at valuing, particularly, I mean, it's one thing with art because art is also a very inefficient market, you know, for all the, you know, the, the, the FOMO thing, like people, you know, something looks yeah. hot, everybody wants it. But this, th- these are sort of artifacts. So it's more than art, right? It's these are these are many times they're you know, military medals from you know great great grandfather or what. Like so, a lot of times we're, what we're looking at is it's not just it's, it's aesthetic value. It's also like it's historic value and it's value to that particular family. And and so one one of my sort of little musings: you walk through these antique stores and thrift shops. Every once in a while, you'll see one of these big, you know, beautiful oil painted portraits of some some somebody, right? It's like, so now imagine the sequence of events, because sometime, you know, three generations ago, somebody sat for that portrait, spent a lot of money probably, and it was very proud of it, put it over the Davenport, <laughs> you know, right? And then here, here I am looking at it in, the, in an antique shop somewhere. It's like, so who's, whose grandmother is that? <laughs> right? yeah. and, and then I'm thinking, like, if you buy it, what do you, what do you tell people if you hang it in your house? Like, I, I don't even get... Like, who's that? Oh, that's just nobody. That's just something, something I found in an antique shop, right? So so there's something about that world that sort of highlights the difference, the, the way we think about value, right? Like the monetary thing, and then there's this other thing. And maybe that's a, a decent analog for what you're trying to get at, Catherine, right? Because there's this other thing, which we obviously value, that doesn't necessarily lend itself to a marketplace, right? Well, it's like the guy who's like talking about how his wife is beautiful and everyone thinks that she looks like a linebacker, but you know, she's beautiful to him. Um, <laughs> and that's great. Or, you know, what does she see in him? Um, and it's like, well, it's because it's, it's my wife. It's my husband. It's, it's my child. It's my baby. And yeah, to you, it wouldn't make any sense, but um, there's that. No, that, uh, that person's a part of the fact. Sorry. So go ahead. Go ahead, Catherine. But it's that that gets broken when you have issues with attachment. Bingo. Yeah. So I was just about to say, thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You lose your faith in people. Yeah. You lose your faith. And I really resonated, Rob, when you were saying that that was a conversation that you see as extremely important because I agree. 
I think that is central. Um, and I think that we you can address attachment issues. Mm -hmm. I think that um, to do so, you have to have a vision for what that could look like. You have to have the willingness to do a lot of struggling personally to be able to shift it in yourself and for the next generation. Because if you're somebody with attachment issues, it's very painful to try to attach well to other people. Yeah. It creates a lot of anxiety, a lot of distress. As you move forward through it, it's not just the initial parts of like starting to attach to somebody that's hard. Then there's all kinds of anxiety that you have to face because there's fears of the attachment moving away. And then you have to face sort of grieving and anger about the fact that you didn't get that when you were younger. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's possible, but it is an extended process that requires guidance, support. Um, what were you going to say, Brad? And everything is riding on that relationship because you're also not nested in a family or a village or an extended community. So it's not just that you're, you're, you know, on tender hooks about, you know, managing the connection. It's that if it fails, you lose everything, right? Cause you don't have all the other context that mm -hmm. you might've had in another time. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, often people who have those attachment issues, um, addiction gets wrapped in yeah. because you have a very uncomfortable relationship with reality and addictions usually exist because they help you escape reality for a little while. And so, you know, that could, it could be alcohol and drugs, but it could also be shopping. It could be, um, you know, pornography, whatever. There's also usually some kind of unhelp unhealthy, unhelpful coping mechanism as well that you're trying to fight against at the same time. That also buffers you from other people and creating a secure mm -hmm. attachment, you know, like, mm -hmm. be it that you, you hold yourself back, you have, uh, you have a secret that you won't tell. Um, the thing that you've gone to for comfort um, is threatening to the person you're looking to, you know, create a, an attachment with. I mean, that's part of why people have a issue with letting go of an addiction is they've, they've actually formed some sort of attachment to it that may actually be more secure than with any other person. So it's like, well, you know what? Booze always makes me feel great. You know, that's consistent. When I get drunk, I feel good. <laughs> um, and that's more consistent than anything else in my life or anyone. Uh, and so stepping back from that is, is, is hard because there's something consistent about it, um, to your point. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to push on. So when we talk about attachment, think about Velcro and think about marriage as Velcro. Now, Rod, you have a real point that to say, to sell marriage as, well, when you get old and crusty, nobody's going to be there to change your diaper. Not a, not a, not a great image, not a great image. Although, but you know, when my, my father wasn't even cold and my mother looks at me and says, and I'm not getting remarried. And now I, sometimes I say stuff in videos and my sister rats me out. So sorry, ma. Um, but, and what she was, and, 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 and my sister and I kind of look at her like, where did this come from? <laughs> we weren't thinking about that at all, ma. But, and and basically she was saying, cause she sees a lot of, she says, I'm not gonna, I gladly, you know, if, if, so my father died suddenly of a heart attack. 
But if he, you know, she had been, she'd been watching him like a hawk and, you know, but he's very Dutch anxious for, is he going to have long, slow decline? And is she going to very practically, she's going to have to care for him. She said, I would have gladly cared for your father, no matter how long, but I'm not taking care of some other old man. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is, but part of what marriage is, it's multi-factor and it's like Velcro, all those little plastic um, curls have have no strength at all but part of what makes marriage is well sometimes she delights you and sometimes she's just there to help you with the wash and sometimes she's another income source and sometimes she's a this and sometimes she's a that and and that becomes an entire that becomes like velcro and when we're talking about attachment i mean what attachment we we say is that you know as a pastor again you'll get a call Pastor, I need to meet you with you right away. And in the back of my mind, because I've done this a few times, is he had a fight with his wife. <laughs> he had a fight with his wife. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, and 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 some people, you know, you, you find some people who it doesn't matter how bad the fight's going to be, they are not going to say the D word. Mm -hmm. Other people, you know, <laughs> you didn't wipe your shoes when you came on the house. Bang, down it goes. <laughs> And attachment is basically like Velcro, that there are so many points of contact, and some of those are within the relationship, and a lot of those are outside the relationship, that it makes that it makes the, the contact durable. That's what we're talking about, secure and insecure attachment. And a lot goes into that. And there's just, I mean, part of part of where science has betrayed us, and and perhaps even all of this other tech, all these other psychotechnologies that in that that take us away from real life and sort of bring us up into the atmosphere for one factor at a time. Science science looks at the plurality of life and says we're going to try and do relevance realization down to one thing. Marriage isn't like that, and life isn't like that. And so, secure attachment means there's lots of reasons why I stay here, and maybe today I'm staying in this marriage because. My wife is hot. And maybe tomorrow I'm staying in this marriage because she cooks okay. And maybe the next day I'm staying in this marriage because, gosh, we got kids. And the cumulative effect of all of that is part of what keeps marriage together. And we talked a little bit about the fact that in many ways, the what we have built in terms of the, the state and in terms of the urban technological society and in terms of the safety net and in terms of all of these things that we've created to alleviate suffering and help the poor and for all kinds of good reasons, well, do you really need marriage when you've got social security? Now, the truth is, yeah, you do because I see what social, I see what kind of nursing home social security will get you. And I see divorced people in terms of, you know, economics, boy, two can live, you know, the old, it isn't quite true. Two can live as cheaply as one, but there's truth to it. And all of these factors come together. And if it's, you know, yeah, there's some wobbliness in there, but you've got enough of those little plastic <laughs> fingers, the attachment will stick and you're always watching each other. And it's like, okay, I'll stay. It's not sexy and it's not glorious, but because life goes on like this, it does work. 
Mm-hmm. We can't let Paul talk too long about marriage or no one will do it. <laughs> I don't know. I talk to a lot of people and there's a lot of people who are like, I, I'm totally, I, I'm totally I know you're, kidding. I know you're being kidding, but I'll tell you, I, I talk to people who are, you're right. They're in marriages right. that I think I would, I would not want to be in that marriage, but they stay in it and they stay in it for very real reasons. The marriage is sexless. The people are miserable to live with, but doggone it. He's They're doubling down, so- folks. He's doubling down. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I'm totally kidding you. Because of course you're right. You're absolutely right. No, it, it, it's, <laughs> I mean, in the sense I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remind myself to find ways to be optimistic about it because you kind of know where, how I feel about it. I think it's in trouble, big trouble, right? Um, but, but I also want, I'm rooting for it, right? I mean, are 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 we are we basically saying that marriage is for agreeable, high in openness, generally extroverted, uh, securely attached, um, you know, essentially emotionally, psychologically healthy? That was basically Scott Adams' point, right? That book I I waved around the first conversation, the uh, the all or nothing marriage, was making the point that like you know whatever twenty percent, whatever the number is, there's a fraction of marriages that are great, right? And the people who are doing it well, are doing it really well, and they're loving it, right? It's everyone else was on the outside of it who, who has now the freedom to decide whether or not they want to do it or not. They're, do, they're not doing it, or they're giving it a try, and they're, and they're walking away from it, right? And so the, what's the, how do we make it so that it's something that's good enough that actually people would want to participate in it, right? And if, if all it is, is like using your mom as an example, she kind of, again, she sort of, she sort of gave something away when she said that, right? Which is, she would do it for your dad because, you know, all the history, right? You have children together, you have and all that together. Her. Right, all that, right? It was a good marriage. It's, I better say mean, that. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mean she wouldn't be capable of loving somebody else. It's just that if she's making the calculus there, all, you know, it's like the spot price in a marketplace. Well, if that's all it is, it's just not enough because I'm not going to be stuck taking care of somebody else, right? And lots of people are finding themselves at various points in that trajectory where it's just not enough to do it. And so they're just not doing it, right? And and so anyway. I, and I, suffering I, for it. I think because that's why you keep pushing that. You keep trying to sell marriage because you believe in it. <laughs> I, 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 I do think. And you know, maybe one way to think about this is, well, people, there's a whole lot fewer unwanted children out there. One of the sort of potential salutary effects of all of this is, yeah, people aren't getting married just because they have to. They're not having kids because they're supposed to. They're, they're, they're not doing the Kramer versus Kramer thing because that's traumatic to children and you shouldn't do that. So they're just not doing it, right? And the, the people who love the idea and love family and want to have children that, well, they are, they're doing it. Right. Remember that article that came out of this probably two or three years ago. Now uh, before long, we'll all be Amish. <laughs> it was, it was, it was a great article. If I think of it, I'll share it with you. Cause it, I mean, it was slightly tongue in cheek, but it was basically making the point like they are expanding dramatically. Like you, you, you look at how many of the words say 1930 to now, and it's like this explosion of, of population because guess what they have kids right and so sort of a joke if you took if you just extrapolated their growth rate you know before long the whole country will be Amish 
not exactly serious, but makes a point, right? So, you know, one way to think about this is, you know, maybe we're trying to save something that can't be saved for people who don't see why it's worth it. But the result will be that there are people who do see it. And maybe a lot of these are in faith communities, but not necessarily. And they're going to, you know, love each other and have children and bring those children into a world that's optimistic about the project. And, you know, maybe that's what happens is that is we just have a lot less, uh, a, a lot fewer broken and, un, you know, families and unwanted children. Well, and I think to go back to the attachment thing, if you have poor attachment, a marriage is the best place to address that problem, right? If you have somebody who you both can look at each other and be like, look, I got problems, but I'm in it for the long haul. If you're willing to put up with my problems, I'll put up with your problems. We'll try to figure it out. I am going to do my level best to not go anywhere, even if you're a crazy person. And if you can do your level best to not go anywhere, maybe I could start trusting that eventually. And I think if we could both start trusting it, then we've got the best shot we could have in this life of feeling more stable, more secure, which could help us drop the addictions we have, which are making us not capable of saving money, not capable of having a larger friend group, not capable of really investing in the community. You know, I think the attachment piece is a big selling point. And then the other is marriages, um, like I said in the first conversation, there's so many practical benefits to marriage that I think those speak for themselves. Financially, um, in terms of social connection, there's a ton of practical benefits. They, they don't but, speak for themselves. They need to be spoken for right now in the culture. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, you end up earning and saving way more money when you're married um, than you would even on your own as just a single man or woman. Um, your children, if you are blessed enough to have them, will be less likely to go to jail, earn more money, have a more stable family themselves, will be um, less likely to die young. There's tons of benefits for your children. And then long-term, it's not just that you have the connection with your spouse, you have the connection with their whole family. And again, you maybe you marry somebody and it starts off with like a lot of like, maybe their family isn't so stable. But again, those things can change over time and you actually have a role in how stable that family becomes. Because you're like a lot of times when people grieve the loss of a spouse, they also end up grieving the loss of connections that that spouse brought them. And um, particularly um, if it's the wife that died because she tends to be the, the one that ties them in. Yeah. You know, men live a lot longer when they're married. And for women on the women's side, yeah, you, you're not going to live longer if you're married to a man because you tend to live long anyhow, but your children will be significantly more stable, live longer and more successful if you have their father married to you or at least really, really involved in the picture, but marriage is best. And so for both sides of the equation, there's a really strong argument to be married. And <laughs> the thing is, if you're unhappy in your marriage, you're probably going to be unhappy anyways. Like you think of people, Paul likes his example of like the things that get in your way. Right. But there's all these studies. You win the lottery. You're going to be just as happy in three years as you were beforehand. You become a paraplegic. You're going to be just as happy in 10 years as you were beforehand. It's unlikely that 
your marriage is the reason that you're unhappy or happy. So do we add that to the list? It's for happy people, <laughs> right? No, <laughs> no, it's for all I'm people kidding. because it's I'm better. Kidding. Okay, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I horribly <laughs> communicated. <laughs> no, no, happy people will have better marriages. I mean, you're right, right? Unhappy people, they're going to be unhappy either way. So I guess your point is you're going to be unhappy either way, so you might as well get married. Yeah, because it actually has the potential to change you as a person, which then you could become the kind of person who could be happy, whether your spouse passes away afterwards or not, because it allows you to work through some of those issues that most relationships don't have the stability to allow you to work through. Because the nice thing in a marriage is Eamon sees all my crap, right? The most powerful things for me in our marriage have been the times where I've lied and then I've had to confess it to him and then he forgives me or I've mishandled money and then I come shamefaced and I'm like, ah, <laughs> I ruined this whole thing. And then we work it through, but it's the experiences of being a failure, having moral failures and making choices that were wrong, not just mistakes, but making the wrong choices and being loved and not having the relationship fall apart. That's what builds the attachment because you can be a failure and be loved. And you are transformed by also being the one who extends that to the other person. Mm -hmm. um, it's not all hinging upon your spouse being incredible and forgiving and all of that. When you extend that, um, you're transformed. And, and when you get the opportunity to see how somebody responds to your, your love and your forgiveness, your mercy, uh, that's powerful too. And maybe they don't change right away. Uh, maybe it's over the course of five or 10 or 15 years, mm -hmm. but they, they're, they're transformed by that. I get to see that as well. And again, it's not a hundred percent thing that that always happens. Some people do have like, the really crappy marriage where the person never sees anything good about them for whatever reason they stay. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's really difficult um, always at all times. But I, I think, and I think those are more the exception. I think we're, I think we end up suffering from um, collective vicarious trauma from all these terrible stories when, um, and we don't get to hear the, the beautiful stories as much. And some of it is sometimes people are just not wanting to be rude and be that person who's like, oh, your marriage is really hard, but you know what? Mine's great. Um, but it, we suffer for not hearing the good stories as well. Uh, that's where we lose a vision for the beauty. Well, you guys can vouch for this better than I can, but I've, as I understand it anyway, the literature all points to even the most difficult, hard to treat cases, personality disorders and things like that having at least one secure attachment in terms of healing and growth is, is, is make it's the difference maker. Sometimes that's the therapist. Um, ideally they have someone in their life who is sturdy and secure that they can, that they can count on. Uh, I'm not sure you're familiar with this author, but it's worth a recommendation to the audience. A Stan Tatkin, um, who, who he wrote a book wired for love and he's written a couple of others as well. He's a, yeah, he's like a, he's, he's a, I think he's a psychologist, maybe like a neuroscientist psychologist, like more focused on the neuroscience, but his basic premise is kind of the stuff we're talking about in terms of attachment, which is how deeply biological our need for attachment is. It's that it really is in our makeup as a species. 
all you have to do is just watch primates at a zoo and just watch them like constantly grooming each other. And, you know, like they're just touching each other constantly, right? There's just all of this uh, uh, essentially uh, soothing going on, right? And his point is that, you know, kind of like, <laughs> I'm giving Paul a hard time for this, but he, he sort of makes a similar point, which is that when you, when you marry somebody, you're taking on their burdens. Like he, he doesn't put a shine on it. Like it, the, the, the act of taking on another person is to take on their burdens. Of course, they're doing the same for you, right? Um, and so he goes into like having little rituals, like always making sure that when, you, you know, when one of you gets home after the other, that you have a greeting ritual that you do at the door, and like lots of little things you do to sort of kind of ritualize your relationship, um, all in the, under the sort of umbrella of that this is essentially in our nature, right? This is yeah. like, we need this, right? Um, and anyway, I recommend him as an author. Um, and I remember one of his books, Wired for Love. I think there are one or two others as well, but he goes into the kind of science of what you're talking about in terms of attachment. Well, you think how different it would be if the conversations were less about like, well, if you work out, you know, certain number of days of the, the week, you're going to be a lot more attractive to women. You're going to have more sex. Um, than if it was you work on yourself so that you can be someone that has secure attachment. You could be a secure source of attachment for other people. Um, Cause essentially without any of the psychological knowledge, that's what my dad did <laughs> when he is goal of stability. Right. Um, whoa. Well, that would be really radically different. If, if we took what we knew about um, attachment and we had that somewhere up higher in the hierarchy of our professional ethics as psychologists, um, how would that transform the field of psychology? Um, you know, the, I think that the tools are there and the understanding is there. Um, it's where is our attention? And, and that's where this idea of, you know, it being a marketplace, <laughs> um, first and foremost, I think is just so damaging right out of the gate. Um, not that those elements are not um, important. You should be thinking about attractiveness and understand those things. But when when that's the framing and that's at the top, that's that's insecure attachment and being choosy all over the place, right? That's you're you're set up for that. Jordan so Peterson, can we can we sell marriage, Rod? As as you know, is is it sexy enough that people become the kind of person that? You know, can 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 Velcro sell marriage? Is Velcro sexy enough? Well, um, you know, I like my little vignettes that makes me think of this. Um, there are a lot of things that we know that we don't necessarily want to admit we know when we're, particularly if we're talking publicly about things that are delicate, right? Um, for example, uh, do any of us really doubt that if the studies were done, that probably the single most predictive uh, factor in thriving in adulthood for children is lots and lots and lots of access to loving parents um, whenever they need it, essentially? So we instead pluck them from their mother's arms. You know, maybe we give her six weeks 
of maternity leave and then she's back to the mines and we're going to hand that infant to a Central American immigrant and just you hope could for probably the best. do it better. <laughs> fair, fair point. Yeah, this is not a comment on Central American immigrants at all. This is a comment on it's not their mother, right? Yeah. Um, and it's probably in the room with lots of other children who have needs as well, right? Yeah. Um, just the idea that you that your your parents are around, you know, that you can you can access them if you need them, right? Um, does anybody really doubt that those kids are going to grow up a lot more securely attached? Uh, yeah. you know, but, but if you say that, you're, you, know, you just lob some kryptonite into the entire business model that is a two-income family, right? Um, here's, a, here's one. So let's say we have two children born on exactly the same day. For the purposes of this little vignette, they're identical in every way. Um, there's only one difference which is the conditions under which that they came into the world. In one case, uh, their mother and father met when they were in kindergarten, grew up together in a small village. They've known each other their entire lives. All their families have known each other. And they were mostly friends as children. And there was this point when they went off to college and came home for, for Thanksgiving or Christmas that they, there was a spark, something had changed. And suddenly there was an attraction and they started you know, at first quite quietly dating. And then the word spreads among the village that these two have, and, and just imagine the rejoicing that happens when the village mm -hmm. learns that these two have, have, are beginning to fall in love with each other. And then imagine that wedding. And then imagine that child being born to those parents. And imagine that child walking the streets of that village, knowing its entire story and hearing over and over and over again, all the stories about when mom and dad were kindergartners and the way they used to play, right? The other child, again, identical in every way, born on the same day. But this was, in this case, the child's mother was going through a really difficult breakup. And to help just get over it, you know, she was, you know, maybe doing a lot of partying. And she honestly doesn't know which man it was that she, you know, that caused her to conceive a child. And maybe she just chose the one that seemed most responsible um, in terms of assigning you know, heritage to it. Um, and this child, you know, comes into the world, not ever really knowing who his father or her father was. The, the mother is as loving as any mother can be. We're not, we're not trying to shame this mother. This is just a very different set of circumstances. Do any of us doubt which child has a better chance to thrive in adulthood? We know these things, right? But, but to say them, has us tripping over all sorts of things that we're not comfortable talking about. And so selling marriage, Paul, <laughs> it's, it's essentially, as I said in my little piece, it's essentially you're, you're orienting toward the future. You have to care about the future in order to care about marriage, yes. right? Yes. Because Absolutely. you can see a world where people come into that world knowing they're loved and wanted and, and knowing that their parents love each other. And maybe once in a while they see, you know, dad kind of, you know, smacks his wife on the, on, on the butt when he doesn't think anybody's watching. Like he's, they see a little like, Ooh, something else is going on between mom and dad. Right. Like it's a mystery, but it's, it's also kind of a beautiful kind of mystery, right? Oh, there's something else. There's a spark, there's attraction, right? There's affection. Um, dad is modeling a certain kind of way of being a father and mom is modeling a certain way of being a mother. And, you know, there's, there's overlap there, but right. 
we all instinctively recognize that those kids are <laughs> are going to thrive or are they're more likely to thrive let's say in adulthood but we have a hard time talking about it. i i totally agree with you and i think that part of what's hard about what makes it hard for us to talk about it is because we can be so black and white that it can feel like well there's this ideal marriage and this ideal family and if we can't get to that point then it's just all a failure and so if we don't have that idealized state then it's a failure but we don't want it to be a failure so let's say that that idealized state doesn't matter and everybody should just try their best and we just won't worry about that idealized state because we don't want to then not try so to keep people from not trying we won't have the goal to which they could achieve and I, so this is a little bit of a tangent, but hopefully it tracks. One of the things, so when I was a young mom, it was really, really hard. Um, I didn't have the family supports that I needed. I had a lot of postpartum depression and it was really hard. It was an unexpected pregnancy. Um, I wanted to wait eight years. I wanted to finish all my school. I had plans. <laughs> They all got wiped out and um, it was just, it was just hard. And then the babies kept coming and it kept getting harder. And um, I, I had a lot of anxiety and shame about my ability as a mom. Cause it was just so challenging. And it was like, you can imagine this idealized state, like this is the way it should be when you're a mom, you should, spend all this one-on-one -on -one time and how many books should you read and how much playtime should they have with other kids and what is the nutritional quality of the food that they're getting and how consistent is their schedule and there's all these like whoo, with the list of expectations as a mom but one of the things I found so comforting was I was working on an assignment and I ran I was doing some research I can't remember what the book was but there's this study on motherhood and the good enough mom and there's all this research that you basically had two categories of kids. You had kids where their moms were good enough and the kids where their moms weren't good enough. And the moms who weren't good enough moms were the ones who didn't spend time with their kids and they didn't read to their kids and they didn't really care about the nutritional quality of their kids' food and all of that stuff. But there was a threshold where you were a good enough mom. And after that threshold, it didn't matter how much attention and time extra you paid, it was still gonna be good enough. So it's kind of like you had to get like 60% of the way there. So like on the grading scale, D for done. D for know? done. Yeah. You had to get <laughs> to good enough. You passed. <laughs> but anywhere between good enough and amazing, there was no outcome difference for kids. And I found so much comfort because I was like. Or, or little. There was a difference, but not. It, it, was wasn't, de it wasn't devastating. It was a so minimal. Yeah. Yeah. But I found it so comforting because I was like. I'm, I don't, I can't be convinced at this point that I'm a good mom, but I think I'm a good enough mom. I think I'm a good enough mom. Well, thank you, honey. But, it, but at the time it was hard for me to maybe see things that way, but I could say it's good enough. And I think it's something similar with this, where it's like, you don't have to shoot for the perfect marriage. There's the good enough marriage. There's the good enough attachment. And if, if we can, instead of having it be black and white, where it's like, well, either I can make sure that, you know, we have 
this perfect ideal and anything less than that is just a waste. Why bother? Don't get married. Don't have kids. It's like, yeah, that's maybe the ideal. You're shooting a little high. But if you can shoot for, if it's good enough, it'll be better. And you'll, you will, you will be able to achieve these goals. You will get more attached. You will be more secure. You will be able to, you know, fill in the blank, even if it's not that ideal state. I think some, sometimes bringing the goal down allows you to still have a goal. And stability psychologically, right, is being able to incorporate both positive and negative. Um, it's, you know, the, the term, right, is splitting when you, it, it's all one way or another. And if you're splitting, you're going to have instability in your understanding of self and of others. And if, if you split, you're not going to be oriented to reality. But if you can incorporate positive and negative, um, the good and the bad, and hey, it's okay. Um, it, that doesn't mean that you don't try to work on things. Um, it doesn't mean that you're horrible. <laughs> it means, you know, you're, you're okay. That's, that's all right. Everyone has some things to work on. You're, you're going to be a, a psychologically stable person. Um, and your relationships with other people, you'll be able to handle somebody criticizing you and it'll be all right. Um, and, and you also will be offended if somebody's really, really rude to you. And that's probably about where you should be. And um, I, that's where it's interesting. I guess there's different psychological profiles for things like, I think my, I was thinking, I was like, I wanted to clarify my dad's comment about um, find a woman with a knock against her. <laughs> so does it sound like some sort of predatory thing where it's like, look for the weak ones. Um, <laughs> that it, it came from more a place of like, okay, you know, he, he's very open about, you know, he has his stuff and it's like, you know, find somebody who, who knows a bit who they are and they, they know that they're not perfect and have wrestled with that and accepted that. And I think that's the, the danger on, like when I hear people who are most traumatized from like church, it's ones who got that message of like, you're just horrible, you're awful. Um, which I, I mean, I think is really a, a warped version of total depravity because you know, total depravity as a doctrine is not that everyone's as bad as they could be all the time. It's, it touches every part of you. And, you know, thankfully nobody's as bad as they, they could be. Um, but, you know, you have to reckon with that, that it's there. Um, so it's, that's, that's what's this point. And that's how I see it being so dangerous. If you get either that message that you're just horrible or I think equally as damaging um, is that you're great. You are fantastic. You are just the best person on earth. You're brilliant and you're gorgeous. And it's like, well, okay, how's that person going to do when they meet reality? And uh, we, we do this you know, going back and forth. I guess that's why I, I, I think you're, you're under, your functional anthropology has to be able to take in and um, integrate um, the good and the bad of human nature. Because then, then you're equipped to be able to look at another person and say, yeah, you're going to have your bad days. And sometimes I'm going to be a jerk, um, but that's not who I am. That doesn't define you. And you're going to be great. But you know what? There's going to be days where you're not fantastic. Um, so I'm, I'm not going up and going on a roller coaster up and down with who you are or, or that terribly surprised by you know, my own failings. And I think we set people up really for a lot of failure by not being realistic about the good and the bad and 
you know, praise the good when it's there and we'll reckon with the, the, the not so great when it presents itself as well. And that's where I think in a marriage, you get that secure attachment is when, like Catherine was saying, the other person sees all your stuff and they really see your stuff and they're still there and they, they don't sp split in their understanding of who you are. And maybe you don't begin with that, but you know, you can certainly work your way towards it with somebody who you're in a, in a covenant with, I think. And then I think that creates space for what you were saying, Rod, where we need to have these, we need to be able to say it's better to have this ideal where the kids are with the family, where the kids are with their mother when they're small, where we can have that conversation. I think when we can pull the pressure off of it and say, and if you don't hit that ideal itself, moving in that direction is a, is better. And so that's why I was shifting over to that to say, mm -hmm. I agree with you, Rod, it's hard to have those conversations um, because it can get this polarizing feeling. It's like, oh, I put my kids in daycare. So what, I'm a failure. My wife is a screw up. Our kids are, it's like, no, no, <laughs> like, let's not go crazy. But there is an ideal. And the closer we can move towards that for some goals, the better. And we can talk about that without demonizing or shaming people who haven't either had the option or made that choice for some reason. You don't have to opt out of the conversation because you're immediately overwhelmed or offended by that. The, I remember the good enough mother. Um, yep, yeah, yeah, you might say it's a nuanced thing, right? Like ideals function in a way, but most of us never achieve them, right? But they, they still have value, right? Um, I remember the good enough mother and, and um, maybe another way of describing that would be something like a mother who cares it's a very vague term, but it kind of captures a lot of things, right? Like you, you kind of know, particularly as, as if you get to adulthood and you reflect back, you kind of know if your mother cared about you or not, right? And a, yeah. and a, and a mother who didn't care about you, that just really hurts, right? Like yeah. nobody's going to love you like your mother. And if she didn't, like you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to fill that hole, right? Like it's, <laughs> so in, in a sense, you know, she can get a lot of things wrong, but if she just loves her kids, you know, she just cares. Within reason, they're probably going to do okay, right? And maybe to your point, to take that same idea and apply it to marriage, you know, you want to be with somebody who cares about you, right? And like you yeah. want to care about them, right? And we're saying that like it's obvious um, because we kind of know what we mean when we say it. But in a sense, that's why so many people are so lost is that how do I you know, how do I find my way to where I would care about a person enough that I'd make those kind of sacrifices for them? And could they possibly care about me with all my, you know, shortcomings, right? And if there's any advice in here for people who are on the outside looking in, trying to figure out like, how would you even, where would you start? Um, one of the things that, that I say a lot to, you know, particularly people who are say in my stage of life, that, you know, I, I encounter a lot of people who are single still, in their you know, sort of second half of their life. Mm -hmm. um, and they've essentially given up, right? Um, and I just, I feel so sad for them, you know, cause mm -hmm. it's just, it's so, you, their loneliness sort of drips off of them, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you wanna be able to say something that doesn't hurt, you know, you wanna be encouraging. Um, but the, the advice I try to, give if I can sort of find my way into that conversation is 
is as much as you can try to be honest with people, like try to describe how lonely you are. You know, maybe you don't do that the very first time you meet somebody, but (laughs) you know, like be vulnerable, find your way into that conversation where you, where you don't pretend to have it all figured out. You're doing great. You got this great life and everything's going fine. Like, no, like, like admit, like, you know, it's just not, it's kind of empty without somebody to share it with. Um, mm-hmm. If that's not true for you, we'll find that this doesn't apply, right? I'm, I'm talking about the people who have a longing for, for connection. Um, try to find a way to, to develop a vocabulary and a language around vulnerability and give people an opportunity to find, to find a way in, kind of to the point earlier, Paul, where um, I, I really do think that a lot of women don't understand this about a lot of men. And I'm not speaking for all men here, I, but I do think I'm speaking for a lot of men which is that that feeling he gets when he begins to love her, to fall in love with her, is highly correlated to where he sees his way in. He sees how she needs him, right? And something happens and he softens and he, and he starts to care about her. He starts to wanna you know, make sacrifices for her, to share you know, his resources with her, to look up, you know, stand up for her. And if she's just fine, thank you very much, He's like, okay, I mean, we're all good here, right? Like, like, and, and he just, he doesn't engage because he doesn't have anything to engage with, right? So I guess if there is any advice there, it would be something like, you know, try to find people who show that they care and try to be the kind of person who cares because that probably is enough. But, that, but what you said, Rod, is deeply countercultural because if you watch mm-hmm. enough TV, it's, uh, strong, independent woman. I mean, this is this is like strong and independent is next to godliness here in our culture. And, um, you know, oh, but I still want to be the kind of person that I still want guys to open the door. And it's kind of like, eh, you know, you're you're going to have to show a little vulnerable vulnerability and need not too much. You know, again, you know, let let let's, you know, mutual disclosure is the path to uh, is the path to love. But um, I mean, culturally, culturally, we are in a corner of our own making. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're in some ways we're victims of our success. I mean, we have we we have wanted to have social safety nets that could replace the very complex safety nets that extended families are. But um, as always those two things aren't the same and there's upsides and downsides, but um, we, go ahead. And not to, I mean, I might be wrong, but you see how the feminine spirit has taken over so much of Western culture. And then you have to think, well, but what was the curse for women, right? It was that her desire would be for her husband and, she wouldn't have it. And you can kind of read that a couple ways. One is that she would want to be like him. She would be want to be the masculine and it wouldn't work out. And one would be she'd want his attention and it wouldn't work out. And we're getting both of those things in our culture. You have what we started the conversation with, the women doing more of the uh, putting on the fancy clothes and the makeup and trying to get the attention But then you also have women saying, well, forget men and I'll just be a man myself and I'll be strong, independent woman 
and forget the feminine. We don't need the feminine. Um, and so this is, I say, you know, maybe you ignore this just because it's a little more philosophical, maybe less functionally, you can do much about it. But it seems to me that if our society has become more um, feminine in its approach, or maybe not feminine, female, I don't know. Um, you've got that feminine spirit where it's more compassionate, more focused on social connections, more leaning in that direction. Um, you also get what comes with that, which is um, this uh, struggle with the masculine. It's a weird chimera though, because at the same time it's, it's impersonal. It's an impersonal compassion from the state and government policy. So in a, in a way it's, it's feminine on, on the surface maybe, but um, the experience is not one of um, feminine um, concern and care and embrace and warmth, which uh, I mean, I think we, I think the world can be very cold. Um, and in one sense, it, what it desperately needs actually is um, the, the true feminine um, to inhabit um, and not uh, the, the knockoff or the surf, surface version of it or the institutionalized version, because you, know, you can't be institutional and, and really personal at the same time. And I think the you know, feminine warmth when it's in the feminine spirit, when it's at its most powerful, I think is when it's in the personal. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can have a feminine institution. Yeah. Right. Like the, the institutional is the masculine. Hmm. And so I don't think you can have it. I think if you try to do that, that's when it gets twisted. Hmm. Yeah. Cause it's, you have the institution, you have the feminine spirit inhabiting it, the people who are within it at that personal level. I just, I just, I'm almost done watching Rod. This is not the, the stuff you want to watch um, <laughs> on HBO max. They have a documentary out a couple of years ago called the vow about the Nexium um, group. And um, I mean, so many of these issues are many of these people were high achieving people. And so then they have these men's groups and then they have these women's groups and, and what was interesting was that it was just laden with psychology. It's just laden with cultural values. And then it, um, you know, winds up being part, at least good part of it winds up devolving into a sex cult. And, uh, you know, it they was, do. it was just, you sure I won't like this. <laughs> it isn't a sexy documentary. It's not that kind of thing. Um, but uh, it's, it, it was masterfully done. And because because the way the presentation, I, I have I've I've yet to see a documentary that the process, uh, the disclosure of the documentary was just so dialed in to to kind of help the viewer walk through the the levels and and how this thing became what it was. But all of these issues, the masculine and the feminine, and um, yeah, we're, we're up to our neck in these things. And what was interesting was that for, for some of the early whistleblowers, it was, 
it was really marriage that saved them. Mm. And those who weren't married were much more easily victimized by what was happening in the group. Because suddenly, as with marriage, you've got two heads and there's a strong attachment. And that cult really tested the attachment of these people. But in both cases of, of two of four of the key, very early whistleblowers who were deep, deep in the organization, it was the, it was, they could not both be in a sex cult and a marriage. <laughs> Those two <laughs> things don't go together. <laughs> I, One helps. I think, I think we, I think we alluded to this last time and we haven't yet gotten to it. Um, but a, a much more thorough discussion about the masculine and the feminine, I think, is is a, a, a worthy pursuit. Um, there's just there's so much there, and some great um, there's there's a lot of great books and a lot of great thought about it. It's it's a, it's, a, it's again another thing, hard thing to talk about in public. Um, you know, masculinity versus the masculine femininity versus the feminine right that we each have both all of us have both within us right these ideas around the words we're using order and chaos you know peterson got in trouble for that by equating those uh, to masculinity and femininity but um i i think it was david dita uh, data um he wrote a book it's more than 10 years ago now but um he had a concept of it that i always liked which was the masculine is all the things in your in your nature that stay the same and the feminine is all the things that change so like if you can if you can like imagine your very 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 earliest memories going all the way back to like the very first memories you have like the sense of the you that is uniquely you that has always been you that is something like the innate masculine that you have within you and then it's all the things that change, it's the seasons, it's the cycles, it's gaining weight, losing weight, it's, it's, it's all the things that happen that change is, is the feminine, is another way to think about, it, it sort of take it out of the realm of like male and female or masculinity and femininity, right? It's just this idea, and, and Peterson used order and chaos to accomplish it, yin and yang, right? There's lots of different ways to talk about it, but I do think that, that a, a, a revival in and maybe we've talked about this already I can't remember if we have but the you know you see this in the Latin cultures where there's a lot more of a polarity between the masculine and the feminine and you just don't see the, the you don't see the angst and the neurosis around this you don't there, there's just a much much more healthy flow and it seems to really work for them culturally and so it, it does seem like a, a discussion, you know, I don't know if we can do it justice, but there's a lot there. I think. <laughs> we probably can't do it justice, but I think it's worth trying. Yeah. Um, just to put my cards on the table, I know we don't have much more time, but I think that the best framing of it is that um, the feminine as the ocean, the masculine as the land, and that when you bring those together, either of those is barren on its own, it's empty, right? Like the ocean, it's just, Maybe there's monsters in it, but there's not human life in there. And the masculine without water is just the desert. And so when you bring them together in the way that 
they should be brought together, then you can have a garden. And so the ideal, it's not that you have, you know, one is bad, one is good. It's the proper integration of them um, where they don't become a single thing, but they um, pull out more out of the other than you could either on its own, like you said, within yourself. And then obviously within the extending circles of relationships too. I do think it's a little interesting that last time Catherine sold us on settled and this time she's selling us on good enough. And, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I just, you know, I know I'm the, I'm no, I'm no, I'm the one who goes dark on this stuff, but really that's what Catherine's doing. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because settled and good enough is good. It's not bad. Well, and I'll tell you this, I think this does go to the, Another thing we could get into, like, there's two, a relationship is at least two people, um, but it does involve individuals. And I, this is, I guess, it's just something about me, I suppose. I never felt offended by it. Like she was settling for me. It was not, it's not in my nature, I guess, to be like, oh, well, I mean, if she was like, well, you're my product to work on, I would have been offended by that. You're the goat um, or the chicken. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're not the meat in the supermarket. No, I'm following the metaphors oh. here. Yeah, but Eamon, the context is important. You guys are both young, right? It'd be different yeah. if you were 35, right? Yeah. And 10 or 15 years later, you'd have a different take on this, I think. I would. I would. And I think there are also some personality differences where I think there's weaknesses that come with my personality. <laughs> I know that Catherine can tell you a lot about that. She's talking about settled and <laughs> everything as well. There's, there's something about um, fundamentally how we understand relationships to unfold, um, how they unfold that is separate from us. I mean, our, our, our self-concept is never individual. It's never atomized. Our self-concept um, comes from other people and how they, they treat us and view us. And it is, there are bridges that are easier or more difficult, I think, to cross um, about accepting faults and limitations that are contingent upon messages you receive from other people. And um, I think being around some people where they, they they didn't feel like they were awful, but they were also like very much like, you know, hey, yeah, you think I'm terrible? I can tell you some things that are really bad about me if you want. Um, <laughs> that made it um, made it really okay, I guess. I and I, I think I'm somebody who's generally has, has struggled with self-confidence in different ways. And Catherine was a, a significant part of me feeling like I could accomplish a lot more in my life than I did prior to her um and yeah i think there's, I think there's a lot there about messages we we take from our family what's modeled for us and and how we even enter into a relationship as a conduit and so i think we we have different different hurdles um to entering into that and and i think that there are in, in many ways, there you know, there, there's a billion different ways to do that. In other ways, I'm like, yeah, there's probably like three or four typical bridges that people have to cross. Not one necessarily better than the other, but 
um, are important to reckon with. And I think it does come down to a lot of these attachment styles um, and that, that, that affects us um, considerably, but um, yeah, that's a whole other conversation for another day, I guess. <laughs> I, we're talking on the internet about marriage and every once in a while we'll kind of weave in a little bit of our personal story and those I think are the best parts even though obviously we we do it carefully but I do think those are the best parts mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. all right I, I I sense we uh are ready to land the plane here do we say one love yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Freddie's that's Freddie's. We're not gonna. We're not gonna. Uh, Fred, Fred, Freddie left me hanging last week, but um. So I'll. I will. Uh, I will stop the. I will stop the recording, and and then we can we can talk about dates. Sound good? Sounds good. All right.